Hello, this is Sue Lloyd, Vice Chair of the ISSB, and I'm joined by our Chair, Emmanuel Faber, recording this podcast following our February meeting here in Montreal. So this week, we've not only had our board meeting, we've been busy, and we've also had a, an in-person meeting of our jurisdictional working group, a meeting of the Canadian Coalition that sponsored the opening of our office here in Montreal, a meeting of the IFRS and Sustainability Alliance, and tomorrow we'll have our inaugural IFRS Sustainability Symposium, where we're welcoming around 500 people in person in Montreal, with a further 500 joining us online. So it's been a, a landmark board meeting this week, with the ISSB taking the final decisions around the technical content and voting to move to the balloting process, ahead of issuing our first two standards towards the end of the second quarter this year. But before we talk about what this balloting process looks like and what happens between now and when those standards are issued, Emmanuel, maybe let's talk through the rationale for the final decisions that the board took uh, this week. And one of the things we talked about today was uh, the reference to GRI and the European standards. And I wondered if you could explain how we decided uh, to do that and, and why. Sure. Thank you, Sue. Um, so how we decided, um, those uh, sources of guidance to identify metrics in the absence of an ISSB standard to meet investor information needs, GRI and the European standards will be added to the sources of guidance via an appendix as standards that companies um, may consider, in other words, are allowed to consider. Um, why is, is, um, have we done that is, is a matter that we've actually started to discuss early November and had um, stored uh, until our, our last discussions uh, this week. We're doing this because um, our standards uh, allow companies when we do not have an ISSB uh, standard that they identify as being uh, as accurate uh, or as useful as possible for them um, to uh, discuss financial matters with uh, their investors. Uh, we provide today that they can use um, any uh, standard setter um, uh, product that is designed for the investor focus that we have. And we've decided to open two exceptions to that. One is GRI and the other one is uh, ESRS. GRI because we signed an MOU with them uh, nearly a year ago already now. Um, they've been in uh, the reporting space for 25 years. Uh, a, a large number of companies are using GRI now. They um, are addressing a broader stakeholder group than uh, we are. Um, and we believe that because of the number of companies using them, um, we would uh, simplify their life and reducing the cost of reporting for those companies that choose or have to report on a multi-stakeholder basis if uh, we were going to um, coordinate our work and cooperate with GRI to ensure that uh, ISSB standards plus GRI standards can create a seamless suite of solutions for those companies with GRI focusing on the multi-stakeholder approach and we focus on the investor-focused uh, approach. And so because of that, uh, we felt that this could warrant uh, the presence of GRI as uh, an exception to the fact that only 
investor-focused uh, standard-setting references would be allowed. So that's the first uh, one when it comes to GRI. When it comes to the ESRS, uh, we have been uh, working on the interoperability uh, with uh, the ESRS uh, for already several months and making good progress um, since uh, the, the, the back end of the feedback that we received from our consultation. Uh, leveraging that consultation and the feedback together with work uh, we did uh, jointly with EFRAG and now with the EU Commission to come to, uh, I think, uh, a place where we are very confident uh, to deliver maximum interoperability, uh, in particular with S2 on climate, um, in, uh, in, in, a, in a delay or, or um, with a, with a timeline that will not delay uh, the publication and finalization of our standards. Um, so we are at a place where uh, we, we felt as well that the ESRS existing as they were before we were there, but with this interoperability framework that we're developing, uh, could also be a useful source of information, despite not being specifically investor-focused, um, for companies that are looking for metrics for matters that they believe are financially material in the sustainability space for their investors. So these are the two reasons, uh, complementary reasons, uh, but I think uh, consistent reasons why uh, we introduce them as part of our um, appendix uh, in, uh, in S1. Um, so that, are, that was our first discussion, and we then discussed the uh, effective date. And Sue, I'd love that you um, tell us a bit more about the decision on this particular front. Thanks, Emmanuel. So firstly, what is an effective date? So it's the date when uh, a company who's um, asserting um, compliance with our standards would have to apply the uh, standard. and. Um, it's a little bit more complicated here because, of course, jurisdictions also are going to make decisions about when um, the standards are applicable. But from our perspective, when we talk about the effective date, we've decided that it's appropriate for companies to be applying our standards for annual reporting periods beginning on or after the 1st of January 2024. And that's because of the really strong investor demand for this information to be provided on a timely basis, uh, the strong regulatory demand, and also just the general need for comparable and consistent high-quality information about sustainability risks and opportunities, particularly um, in the case of, of climate. This is quite a, you know, some people might look at this and think, wow, they're going to publish these standards you know, in June and then they're applicable from the 1st of January 2024. That seems quite fast. And that obviously was something we, we talked about and, and, and considered really carefully. But I think there's some really important reasons for why we thought that was still an appropriate um, decision to make. And that's for a few different reasons. So firstly, S1 and S2 haven't come from nowhere. They've been built on well-established standards and frameworks that people are already familiar with and applying, such as the TCFD recommendations and the SASB standards. Um, so that provides a head start for many. We've also built in um, reliefs and guidance um, to help people start off the application of these standards and we're going to work on capacity building. So it's probably worth reminding listeners of what some of those reliefs are and in fact today we confirmed how long some of these reliefs would be around for so it's worth touching on that as well. 
So one of the important reliefs is the requirement to uh, provide the sustainability information at the same time as the financial statements. We know it may take companies a, a little while to get ready to do that on that timeline. So we've said in the first year that you can uh, choose to delay your sustainability report essentially to align with your half-year reporting. The second relief we've provided for the first year is um, the provision of Scope 3 information. You don't have to do that in the first year that you apply our climate standard. We also will allow companies who are using a different way of measuring uh, Scope 1, 2 and 3 greenhouse gas emissions um, at the time of starting to use our standards to continue to use that different measurement method for the first year before they migrate to using the GHG protocol. And in the first year, you don't have to provide comparative information. So that's all uh, one-year reliefs. And in addition to that, I think it's also really important to note that when it comes to the measurement of scope one, two, and three GHG emissions, we have developed um, a measurement framework that really allows um, companies to use um, estimation and, and techniques that will enable people to have a, a little bit of a a softer start, which is a dangerous word to use for me, but a softer start to how you do that measurement. And over time, we would expect people to become more sophisticated mm. in their approach. And so that package of reliefs, uh, we thought, helped people get started and meant that a 2024 date was um, an appropriate one. So, Emmanuel, in the context of all of this, you know, I've been talking about some of the reliefs, but it's a good point maybe to sort of reflect back on some of the other broader uh, conversations we've had about sort of proportionality um, over time because that context is also really important to this um, decision about when people start to use these standards. Yes, thank you, Sue. Um, I, I would certainly echo what you just uh, said about um, the soft start. Um, I certainly understand what you mean uh, when you say it's a dangerous uh, word for us to use. And uh, in the very same time, I think there is a broad recognition around the table um, of the board that um, what we're developing here is a new language. Um, and we are not going to learn that language altogether if we don't start the experience of speaking that language. So we know that preparers, users, regulators, editors, ourselves, are not going to be right in using that language from day one. Uh, but the only way uh, that we one day will be right is to start as early as possible. And I think that um, there was a, a lot of attention paid uh, literally from the very inception of um, the, 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 the board's even composition with our second vice chair uh, being appointed specifically on the topic of capacity building. Um, for smaller and medium-sized enterprises, for uh, developing and emerging countries, because we recognize that um, uh, on sustainability topics, we have to develop a truly inclusive global baseline. So I, I insist on that because that was even in the governance itself of the ISSB that we've decided to um, focus on that topic beyond the pure standard setting aspect. Then on the content of the standard setting, um, we've been regularly in October, November, December, and certainly um, uh, January, uh, focused on those scalability, proportionality reliefs um, that we brought um, to as, as, as an answer 
to the feedback that was given about how big the step might be for uh, smaller companies or beginners in learning that, that language. I think um, some of the critical ones uh, were uh, the use of the notion of reasonable and supportable information available without undue costs and effort. Um, which is drawn from the uh, IFRS accounting uh, experience, uh, which uh, we've decided uh, to apply in the identification of um, the, the value chains uh, in S1, but also in S2 uh, about the uh, climate scenario analysis as well as uh, the scope 3 uh, measurement. Um, in those topics, uh, for instance, we also, uh, I think, very usefully introduced guidance that is based on TCFD. Uh, in particular, when it comes to climate scenario analysis, we're saying that uh, just using uh, what TCFD says, um, you, you, you are a beginner and then you are on the way and then you are advanced practitioner. And so as a preparer, we are saying you should use a methodology that is commensurate with um, um, how and where you operate, depending on how much exposed you think you are to climate risk and what are your uh, skills and capabilities at the very moment. So there is a trajectory of, um, of um, progress um, over a timeline, but certainly making sure that anyone can start, basically. The same applies with Scope 3, where I think we've provided significant granular guidance as to how uh, preparers should favor primary data versus secondary data, verified versus unverified, yet saying that if you only have secondary data, if you only have non-verified, you still use them because they are use useful information for, um, for investors. Um, so th th that has, I think, overall um, is, is creating an environment where uh, we believe that the reliefs uh, that were attached to the effective date of 2024 um, are uh, granularly um, uh, present uh, in various parts of our standards where we felt um, they were important to, to, to be. And I would say that I found personally very useful the first paper that was attached to uh, the February meeting agenda, which was a summary of all of those proportionality and scalability reliefs um, and, and supports and guidance that we have created mainly through the January discussion, but also uh, what had happened uh, before. So with, with these two aspects of uh, the sources of guidance uh, and the effective date, um, we came to the view that uh, that was it. That was it for S1 <laughs> and for S2 after what has been a, an incredible uh, year of work. And we turn to the next stage. Can you tell us yeah. uh, more about this? So big moment after those decisions, which was the official sort of review of our due process steps and then the official question that we always have to ask the board at the IFRS Foundation when we're doing our standard setting. Do you agree that we have done enough to move to finalising the standard? Um, and do you give the uh, staff permission to uh, move to the balloting process? And the answer was a big, happy, unanimous, yes, we do. So we're now moving on to balloting. So what is balloting? So balloting is a very formal process that's described using that term in our due process handbook. And it's a process where we take the decisions that the board has made and we draft the documents, the final standards, 
It's a, it's a drafting process, it's a review process, and it's called balloting because the board members are asked to formally approve and okay that yes, they're happy to publish this document in their name. And this is a really thorough editorial process to make sure that we've are clear in our drafting and articulation and that we have accurately reflected what the board intended. So it takes some time, which is why we finished our decision making today and we expect to publish around June this year. So our editorial, translations and digital reporting teams all get involved in this process to make sure that the document is understandable, that it can be translated into other languages and that it is clear enough to facilitate and enable digital reporting of the information. Um, and we include some uh, external stakeholders um, who help us with some of the editorial review processes as well. So it's, it's a very thorough process. So that will be keeping us busy. You may not see much of us in the, in the, at the board table for a while, but it's not because we're relaxing with our feet up. The other thing that we are now starting to really look forward to and thinking about is our capacity building. So really making sure that we are working um, ourselves and with our partners um, through our um, platform arrangements to um, make sure that the system's ready for application of our standards. And that's truly a global initiative. Even sophisticated companies and developed economies are going to need some help because it's a new type of reporting. And then there will be others in other parts of the world, emerging markets, smaller companies that probably even need more help but everybody I think needs some level of help. And we're really going to be putting a lot of thought and energy into developing materials and working with partners to deliver a core capacity building program across different economic settings around the world. So you'll start to see us, I think, being busy uh, doing that as well. So lots moving into sort of a different part of our business now. Sort us a lot at the board table. Now we move on to drafting and to capacity building. So um, Emmanuel, Perhaps it's interesting now to talk a little bit about what uh, we're going to be up to between now and our next board meeting in March. Sure, thanks, uh, Sue. So the first thing, as, as you alluded to, is um, we're super happy and proud to uh, host our inaugural IFRS Sustainability Symposium here in, uh, in Montreal. Um, as you said, welcoming uh, more than 1,000 people overall. I understand uh, more than 40 different country, uh, countries being represented uh, uh, around this. Um, and uh, we really see this as an incredibly timely event as we uh, have now finalized completely S1 and S2. Um, we were told uh, through the consultation of the trustees of the foundation in 2020 and 2021 that um, we needed to be uh, climate first, but not climate only. Uh, we have now finished uh, the deliberation about climate and many other things, by the way. Uh, so that sustainability symposium will also open on the next parts of our agenda um, that we have already started to share um, back uh, in, in, uh, in Montreal again uh, in, uh, in December, going into uh, some more pixels on climate about biodiversity, natural ecosystems, uh, the social and human capital consequences of um, the, um, uh, the, the, the climate transition and the resilience plans by, by companies, and a number of other important things like the SASB internationalization uh, of their standards, um, connectivity topics with uh, our brother board, uh, IESB. Um, so all of that is happening in parallel of 
um, the, the mainstream work of finalizing S1 and S2. We will also consult uh, later on um, this, uh, uh, this first half of the year about our future agenda. Um, and, but uh, immediately uh, thereafter, uh, we will be soon in Tokyo uh, with the Foundation uh, trustees, uh, engaging uh, with our colleagues of uh, the Japan uh, FSA who host an international conference on sustainability disclosure. We are excited about the announcement in Japan that uh, the uh, uh, JSSB uh, has started their work with an exposure draft in the one year from now, uh, which uh, will incorporate S1 and S2 um, um, with a view that uh, the first standards would be issued uh, in 25 in Japan. So that's going to be excited and that doubles as well the fact that the G7 presidency of uh, Japan has elected human capital as uh, one of their important topic and we're happy to cooperate with them in, uh, in making that happen uh, uh, as human capital will undoubtedly sooner or later be part of our agenda as well. Uh, you alluded to our March uh, uh, meeting um, and, and mentioned that uh, you may, you know, our listeners may not see us at the table. Uh, well, maybe we'll be our feet up uh, <laughs> during this meeting. It's a virtual meeting, but that's because we are going to spend a lot of time now uh, very, very carefully uh, reading the ballot versions of S1, of S2, the effects analysis, and a lot of other very important documents that will allow um, S1 and S2 to become real um, by the end of Q2. So anyway, um, I uh, would like to thank everyone uh, for your attention uh, tonight. Thank you, Sue, for being with me, reporting to uh, our audience. Um, the, the next time for our podcast is going to be around our March meeting. Although it's virtual, that podcast will continue. Thank you all. For the latest developments from either the International Sustainability Standards Board or the International Accounting Standards Board, make sure to subscribe on the IFRS Foundation website, www.ifrs.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take some time to rate, review and subscribe on your preferred podcast player. 